0: Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we have a treat for you. We are joined by Ari Witten, who has a podcast called The Energy Blueprint and has written a book called The Ultimate Guide to Red Light Therapy, which has been one of my passions for a long time. <laughs> and I've never, ever seen uh, a text written, a book, that compiles this relatively complex information that's easy to understand format Ari it does there's a lot of people out there teach health principles and Ari does an exceptional job I'm just so impressed with his um, ability to sort through the 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 chaff and be honest and not have an agenda and really seek the truth he's a seeker of the truth for sure and uh, I'm just impressed with this whole style and this book is just a really good explanation of that he's not has no formal medical training as I understand, he w- could have went to medical school very easily. He had an early mentor in his life. I watched an interview with him. who's was uh, really one of the stellar pioneers in natural medicine up in California. It still is. I think he's in his eighties, and it's just shocking not a micro trace of dementia, mm. and you know, really doing really good. I forget his name, but I'm sure you can ex- mention him. So, maybe talk a little bit more about your background and why what inspired you to compile this resource on red light therapy, which. I think everyone needs because there's so much confusion about this topic. And, it really, and it's really easy to understand why, but once you get the basics, you can sort through it all and navigate it and then make some really wise choices. So why don't, why don't you give us a little more history about yourself and what, what motivated you to write this book?
1: Okay. So uh, I've been studying natural health, nutrition, lifestyle for over 20 years now. Uh, since I was a little kid, it, it started off with typical teenage boy stuff. I wanted biceps and abs. So I got really obsessed with, with fitness and biomechanics, exercise physiology, nutrition, mainly for modifying body composition, muscle gain, fat loss. That was my world for many years. Went on to do a degree in kinesiology, uh, in, in exercise science. And movement science uh, was a personal trainer, health coach, nutritionist for for many years. Uh, went on to do a PhD program in clinical psychology. Um, actually, went to medical school for about two years before I just absolutely could not take that anymore. Uh, then I did my PhD. Those are program. the
0: hard. Those are the hardest years. Basic science uh, years. Those are the yeah yeah. The I mean, yeah, I,
1: I did all the the core basically all the coursework for the medical school and then the next two years are sort of, as you know, clinical clinical rotations. Um, but yeah, I just, I I just despised it. And, um, that means you're a rational human (laughs) being. Well, to, to be involved in a, in an education system where you are literally receiving zero education on nutrition and lifestyle when nutrition and lifestyle is driving 80 plus percent of the chronic disease that we're dealing with to be in the in the hospital in the internal medicine ward seeing patients with diabetes on 15 different prescription drugs being taught nothing about nutrition and lifestyle was just utterly absurd to me and i was looked at as the crazy one for suggesting that they were doing anything you know not in the best way so i just to be in that environment that's so absurd and to be thought of as crazy for suggesting, hey, maybe we should teach this diabetic on 15 different drugs something about nutrition. Uh, it was just not the right environment for me. So I made what was then the toughest decision of my life to to leave. I went on to do a PhD program in uh, clinical psychology, went through all the coursework of that, ultimately decided I didn't really want to be yeah. a clinical <laughs> psychotherapist either.
0: You're a non-finisher, and, man. <laughs> yeah.
1: I finished all the coursework, but I just decided I didn't want to be actually go do be a clinical psychotherapist. And so I started getting back to my roots that had been there for 20, uh, 15 years at that time and started getting back into nutrition and lifestyle and writing books and teaching people about that. And uh, I'm actually now in a master's program in human nutrition and, oh. and functional medicine, just, just to, to keep learning. Cause I enjoy Perfect. it. Um, yeah. But I I've been interested in light therapy for over 10 years now and red and urine thread light therapy has been a big passion of mine. And as you said, uh, there really weren't any, any, any books on the subject no, that were accessible no. for the layperson on that subject. And, uh, you know, I have a book actually in front of me written by Dr. Michael Hamblin. That's a textbook. It's called mm-hmm. the, the handbook of photo medicine. I'd pick it up, but it's actually under my computer right now. But, um, it's like, you know, probably 700, 800 pages. And it's way, way, way too technical for the average person. So um, I, I saw this whole field as just being fascinating and having so much potential to benefit people and starting to, people are starting to gain some awareness. Thanks in part to, to people like you who, who've been talking about it for several years. And, um, I, I, I was amazed that no one had written a book on this. And I said, yeah. Hey, I've been studying this for a decade. Um, I feel like I can compile this literature, make sense of the mechanisms, explain You know, what this is, how it works in a simple enough way that regular people can understand it and create a practical guide to this very complex subject.
0: Now, what there have been many books written on, some very great books actually, which is the fundamental reason why red light therapy is so useful is sunlight, because red light and near infrared, of course, are a subset of of sunlight. And you did a recent interview with Dan Pardee just a a few days ago, at least it was broadcast. Yes, uh, that was really excellent, and and really focused on the incredible value of sunlight as a nutrient, mm-hmm. and what it provides to your body. And red light is and near infrared light is just a way of getting some of those benefits because most of us, and you, perhaps you've dug into the research. I don't know what the numbers are, but certainly the vast majority, and probably over ninety percent, ninety five percent, are not getting enough sunlight. They just aren't. Now I moved to Florida for the specific reason to be outside most of the time. And almost every day, I get at least a half hour to an hour outside in the sunlight, usually around solar noon, at least in the winter, and a little earlier in the summer. But, uh, you know, which mitigates the need for these interventions. But if you're not in that ballpark, and how many of us are, hardly anyone, then you're going to need these. So why don't you transition into the sunlight modification to the red light in your infrared?
1: Right? Yeah, thank you for that, that great intro. Um, I, I will also say, actually, my next book that I'm almost done writing, probably will finish in the next couple months is actually on sunlight. And You've I got to give
0: me a copy of it for sure. I, I will. I think you'll,
1: you'll love it actually, because, uh, I, I'm just blown away. The more I've dug into that subject over the last few years, I've, I've been blown away at how misunderstood and underappreciated the sun is. And just the simple fact, just consider this, that there's a mountain of literature showing that sun exposure, regular sun exposure, is one of the most powerful things and important things you can do for your health and to, to prevent disease. And simultaneously, we have a general public that is afraid of sunlight. Thank like, you, dermatologist. <laughs> what's that?
0: Thank you, dermatologist.
1: <laughs> yes, right, and and even the subject of melanoma is is yeah. rife with misunderstanding because w- without digressing too much, but basically there's there is research showing mechanistically, you know, if you expose cells in a petri dish to lots of UV light, you can absolutely induce DNA damage and and induce cancer formation. Um, you can even take you know rats and expose them to tons of UV, you know, shave the hair off their back and expose them to tons of you know isolated UV light, induce cancer and you can even find an association between sun burns and mm-hmm. increased melanoma risk and despite all of those things it is also the case that when you compare people with regular sun exposure to people with much less sun exposure they do not have higher rates of melanoma in fact there's a bunch of studies for example comparing outdoor workers to indoor workers showing that they actually have outdoor workers have lower rates of melanoma despite 3 to 9 times more sun exposure you so know what,
0: you know what one of the primary reasons for that is what you tell me it is because the indoor workers in the study you cite were exposed to fluorescent lighting yeah, right which has dirty electricity about 62 62 kilohertz and really bad frequencies yeah, so yeah. not only did it get not get sunlight exposure but they got a negative radio frequency exposure
1: right yeah and the and there's all sorts of problems around you know artificial light and the spectrums that are out of balance relative to what we what we should be getting from sunlight, which is a balanced spectrum, and, uh, and and you know basically it's it is the case that intermittent sun exposure, which is that is to say irregular sun exposure. So let's say somebody's indoors most of the time, but then you know once every few weeks they go out and or sunbathe all day, or they go on a vacation to somewhere and and, and they sunbathe all day, they bake in the sun. They increase their likelihood for getting burnt and DNA damage, and that is associated with increased skin cancer risk and melanoma risk. But regular sun exposure, frequent sun exposure is not. And it's because you're engaging these innate adaptive systems in the skin, in, in melanin in particular, that is explicitly designed as basically a, a way of preventing DNA damage from ultraviolet light exposure. So we have this system built into our bodies that's designed to allow us to get the, all these benefits of sunlight without the, the DNA damage and the increased skin cancer risk. But um, you know, the, the, the framing to, to shift gears out of skin cancer specifically, the framing that you said about light as a nutrient is the exact best way of understanding this. Um, just as we require adequate nutrients from the food we eat, just as our bodies require physical movement, to express, this is a key point, to express normal cell function. We also require adequate light exposure to express normal cell function. And the absence of that exposure to, to sunlight on our bodies creates abnormal cell function. And there's there's a there's myriad mechanisms through which this occurs, vitamin D is obviously the most well-known one and is a very important one that, that regulates over 2,000 genes um, related to immune health and obviously um, skeletal health, musculoskeletal health, and many, many other things. Uh, but there's many more mechanisms, and this is the fascinating stuff that most people have no clue about. Mm-hmm. We have red and in near-infrared light, which we can talk about the mechanisms of how that works, because that's a whole
0: Well, before you do that, deep, deep, I just deep deep, want to
1: discussion. Too,
0: just and yeah. highlight the point you said sunlight on your skin. You, you went over it quickly and a lot of people may have missed that. But just going out in the sun on a sunny summer day is not going to work if you've got long sleeve shirts and pants on it's, and a hat. Yeah. Sunglasses.
1: Yeah. So let's break it down. There's, some, there's specific bioactive wavelengths and they work through different mechanisms. So one mechanism, uh, and, and what you just said there is I would almost I would agree with it like ninety nine percent, but the the one part that you can still get benefits from just by being outdoors is just bright light in your eyes. Yeah, yeah. And and unless and the circadian path unless you're wearing sunglasses. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which so
0: I, I would say 30, 40 percent of the people on the beach where I walk are wearing sunglasses.
1: Right. Yeah. You one hundred percent. So um, we we have this circadian pathway which is mostly mediated by blue wavelengths of light and to some extent green wavelengths. So when you look at a blue sky, that's, those are blue wavelengths of light you know, entering your eyeballs. That's, effect, that's, that's feeding back through nerves into the circadian clock in your brain, which is regulating all kinds of different systems in your body from neurotransmitters to hormones, that are uh, regulating your immune function. And we know that, that disrupted circadian rhythm is linked with dozen, dozens of diseases from cancer, many types of cancer to cardiovascular disease, neurological diseases. I mean, the list keeps growing very rapidly. Disrupted circadian rhythm is a very big deal. Obviously, the, the work that I do with the Energy Blueprint, um, I, I consider disrupted circadian rhythm and poor sleep to be probably the single most common cause of low energy levels and, and fatigue. Um,
0: Wasn't that the motivation for your podcast to to address the epidemic of fatigue that's out there?
1: My my whole brand, yeah. The podcast is an extension of of the brand, The Energy Blueprint, but everything I do with The Energy Blueprint is all about helping people with uh, fatigue and and really building out the science of human energy optimization.
0: So so let's take a little tangent there because I think it's important. Because you've been studying this diligently and assiduously for decades. So what is your conclusion at this point as to what are the pro- top few variables that contribute to that? Oh, such a big topic. So I just alluded I <laughs> to the-, the Don't the, go too deep because we want to go into red and near red too. Yeah, this,
1: I mean, what you just said there is, is four hours of discussion just by itself, yeah. but the, the super quick summary is, um, I, I, I like to break it down in sort of two main causes of, uh, at the root cause level. Of um, fatigue issues, and this, these are potentially different mixes of these factors for different people. Uh, but one factor is basically environmental inputs into the system. So these are circadian rhythm inputs, nutrition inputs, psychological, uh, you know, stress, psychological inputs, um, you know, factors that that impact on gut health. Uh, as well as light inputs, light is a big topic we're focused on that in this, this discussion. And, and as we said, that light in itself is there's many, many different layers of how that's regulating our, our physiology. Um, and, and then it, you know, in addition to those environmental level inputs, we have I, I really consider mitochondria to be the center of the story when it comes to fatigue and energy and one of the big layers to that story that most people, even a lot of health professionals, don't understand very well is hormesis, is that our mitochondria are an adaptive system that requires stimulation in order to function well. And we just as if you, you know, stimulate a muscle, that muscle grows. And if you don't stimulate a muscle, let's say you break an arm and you have your arm in a cast, what happens when you get that cast off is you notice that all those muscles atrophied from lack of use, from lack of stimulation. Well, that same thing is happening inside of our cells with our mitochondria, which are our cellular energy generators. If you don't stimulate them and challenge them, they shrink, they atrophy, they, they die off, and they become weak and fragile. And there's basically something called the, what I call the resilience threshold. And there's a whole body of literature around hormesis and and aging, uh, as well as mitochondrial psychobiology with uh, Dr. McCar- Martin Picard- Picard's work and Dr. Doug Wallace's work, where something called the resilience threshold, which is basically that, and also uh, I should mention Dr. Robert Naviot's work around the cell danger response. So um, basically your body 's resilience your body 's ability to tolerate stressors at the environmental level, whether it 's poor diet, psychological stress, um, environmental toxins, or any of the other environmental inputs that are that are stressful on the system your body 's ability to resist those stressors and maintain health, homeostasis, and high energy is directly dependent on how robust your mitochondrial system is, how many mitochondria you have and how big and strong they are. So the more that you have uh, as a result of, of aging combined with lack of hormetic stimulation, lack of challenging your mitochondria uh, through, through hormetic stressors like exercise, like sauna use, like red and urine infrared light therapy, like sunlight uh, and, and like fasting and so on, the more that those mitochondria shrink and shrivel and then combined with the stressors of the modern world, poor diet, poor sleep, poor circadian rhythm, environmental toxins, et cetera, um, deficient light exposure, that feeds into a system that has lost its resilience and capacity to respond to those environmental stressors. And basically when that, when that resilience threshold is exceeded, then you get symptoms. Uh, and you get, that can manifest as disease, but fatigue is sort of I would say the initial sort of universal symptom prior to overt disease.
0: The warning sign. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's good. Thanks for that preface. That's really helpful. Um, so why don't you go into the history of the use of red light therapy, which is actually relatively recent. It hasn't been, we haven't really recognized and appreciated the, the clinical usefulness of this therapy.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I wish I was a better historian in this regard because there's there's really a rich history around you know especially in Europe the use of heliotherapy and there's there's a bunch of pioneers that have have used this for
0: tuberculosis yeah. and treating Vincent wounds. Vincent got a Nobel Prize for I think in the early twentieth uh, century, 1905.
1: Yeah. I, I wish I had all that stuff memorized. I've definitely read a lot of fascinating stuff about it, but I I don't have it memorized off the top of my head to to tell you about the specific names and what they did. But yeah, yeah heliotherapy has been around for you know even going back thousands of years, but more recently in the last couple hundred years, especially in places like the Swiss Alps, and uh, they, they've been using it to treat all kinds of chronic diseases with with pretty remarkable success rates. So the the modern-day red and near-infrared light therapy was kind of an extension of, you know, the original heliotherapy, sun-based therapy, and it started with lasers. You know, that was kind of the initial discovery, and LEDs didn't exist back then, and I think it was, uh, geez, I'm probably not going to get this quite correct, but I want to say maybe the 60s or the 70s. Yeah, I think it was the
0: 60s, Hungarian yeah. researcher Andre Mester. There you go,
1: yes, uh, and so he he started using lasers, and you know, did some fascinating research, I think, where he was trying to, uh, to, to kill some cells in a petri dish, or, and, and he noticed that the use of the laser actually stimulated them and made them healthier. And that, that was kind of the original sort of um, initial accidental discovery of how this light could, could actually benefit cells. It later started being researched by NASA. Uh, I don't know to what extent NASA ended up really using it. Sometimes you, I think there's mixed stories on the, the internet in that regard. But um, then there, there became, for several decades, the use of cold therapy or low-level light uh, laser therapy, uh, also called photobiomodulation devices, in the form of lasers being used in, in you know physical therapy clinics, orthopedic clinics, chiropractors' offices, um, with remarkable effects. And starting, I think, going back all the way to the 70s or 80s, uh, th- this literature, scientific research, started emerging showing profound benefits of the use of these lasers on all kinds of different conditions. And then we had the – this was a pretty big ba- breakthrough because oftentimes the laser devices were 10, dollars $20,000, 30000 the, the emergence of LED technology allowed uh, the creation of photobiomodulation devices, red and near-infrared light therapy devices – that were radically cheaper, a few hundred dollars, you know, four or $500, a $1,000 instead of $20,000. And that is the big breakthrough that has made this technology accessible to the average person for use in their home. Um, but over this span of time, over the last few decades, we now have over 5,000, as of 2020, over 5,000 studies on red and near-infrared light therapy or, or red and near-infrared light photobiomodulation for all kinds of things. So from uh, skin anti-aging and, and combating wrinkles and cellulite uh, to fat loss, to hair regrowth, to uh, improve sports performance and um, uh, accelerated recovery, increased strength and in amplifying the benefits of uh, bouts of exercise. So you get improvements in uh, in. The strength adaptations, improvements in muscle protein synthesis, and, and the amount of muscle that's gained, amplified fat loss, in, increased insulin sensitivity, all, all compared when combined with exercise compare, compared with exercise alone. Uh, there's also research on you know, people with Hashimoto's hypothyroidism showing profound reductions in thyroid uh, antibodies, uh, as well as thyroid hormone levels. Um, this has been used, there's hundreds of studies, for example, on, on all kinds of sort of more random niche things like um, helping people with diabetic ulcers, helping the ulcers, which are kind of non-healing wounds to heal, uh, combating arthritis pain and chronic pain, uh, helping joint health, uh, speeding tissue healing and bone healing in, in wounds and, and fractures. Um, it, one, you know, just to give you a, a, a sense of how extensive the literature, there's I think at least dozens, if not hundreds, of studies on uh, using red light therapy in the context of people undergoing chemotherapy uh, to combat oral mucositis, which is inflammation of the oral mucosa that happens as a result of some, as a side effect of some of these chemotherapy drugs. And one of the most, if not the most, effective treatment for that is red light therapy. So you know, practical things like skin anti-aging and fat loss and muscle gain, to you know, using it in the context of like somebody undergoing cancer treatments to combat side effects and and like i said there's there's over 5000 studies as of 2020 so there's there's a really big body of evidence showing profound benefits for a lot of different things
0: yeah so thank you for sharing that and do you believe that there's additional advantage in many of these clinical scenarios that you described for targeted red or near infrared therapy in addition to the foundational recommendation, which I should believe you're recommending for everyone, which is to get outside and get real sunlight on a significant portion of your skin. Yeah. So do you think you should do both? What's your, what's your take on that?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. And uh, I don't think anybody knows the answer, to be honest with you. Uh, I, I think it's a nuanced answer. So here's, here's how I kind of would think about it in the absence of really concrete evidence testing that very directly. I would say somebody who's a hunter-gatherer in Africa, let's say living, you know, a member of the Hadza tribe who spends hours a day getting sun exposure, um, probably would benefit significantly less from using a red light therapy device than the average Westerner who spends all day in an office. So, in other words, I do think that I think means, yeah, yeah I, I do think that part of the benefits that we see with this technology is actually just replenishing the deficiency that we have in the nutrient of red and near infrared light that we would normally be getting from the sun if we still lived an outdoor lifestyle as we as we have for most of the millions of years of of human evolution up until very recently so i do think that that's the case however there there are some uses of this technology for example Let's say, just as an example, in, in neurological disease, in, in Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease, which is another area that there's, there's research on this showing benefits, um, you need a device that is powerful enough to, mm-hmm. add, to emit light that actually penetrates the skull bone, mm-hmm. which, which is tough to do. So this light normally penetrates uh, a, a, up to about three inches or close to three inches deep into the body. Um, some portion of the light. A lot of it's getting absorbed in the more superficial layers,
0: but skin it's absorbs skin, a bunch. Near infrared by 850 nanometers. Say that again. Near infrared about 850, 810 nanometers. Yeah, near
1: infrared goes a little deeper than red. Um, right. But red and near-infrared definitely penetrate the deepest. And I think if you were to quantify it, maybe near-infrared in 800, 900 nanometers maybe yeah. penetrates, I'm guessing, about 20, maybe 30% deeper yeah. than, than you know the red wavelengths from about 600 to 700 nanometers. So, um, yeah, so it, it, a lot of the light gets absorbed in the skin tissue, in the fat tissue, the subcutaneous fat beneath the skin. And then, you know, let's say muscle tissue absorbs some, but bone really is, you know, as, as you would think just very intuitively bone blocks a lot of light. So to, if you're trying to treat the brain, you need a pretty powerful device to be able to emit a strong enough beam of light to penetrate through the skull bone, to actually deliver some, some of that light, which is a relatively small portion, probably less than, than you know, 20% or something of the overall light being emitted is actually going to make it through the skull bone and get into the brain.
0: Well, that's in a full spectrum bulb, but there's devices that you discussed in your book that are targeted that, you know, where basically you could have, that's the only wavelength they're using
1: 100%. No. So yeah, it's, uh, uh, let me clarify. So of the total amount of light. So let's say it's a, a light well, that's, that's just at 660 nanometers or 850 nanometers. Of the total you know, 100% amount of that light, those light photons being emitted, only about probably less than 20%, if not less than 10%, will actually make it through the skull okay. bone to, to the
0: brain. Okay. That's good to know. Excellent. So, um, and I think now is a good point to discuss the common American myth, if it's a little is good, more is better. Because there's a bimodal distribution, a biphasic distribution, actually, as to an optimal Goldilocks dose. And more is not better. In fact, it could be far worse. So why don't you talk about that now? Because there's a sweet spot you want to hit.
1: Yeah. So th- there is a biphasic dose response to red light therapy, infrared light therapy, as you, as you said. And what does that mean? Basically, this applies to all forms of hormesis. So it applies to fasting. It applies to exercise. It applies to ultraviolet light exposure, Um, it it applies to sauna use, everything has basically, you have to do enough of it to get some effect. So if you do too little, you're not going to get any benefits. And then there's a range where, you know, you're doing enough to get some benefits, but you're not overdoing it. And so you're, you're kind of in that sweet spot, the Goldilocks zone. And then there's a point at which you're doing so much of it that you're getting a negative effect. So the same thing happens with, with exercise, for example. So if somebody's doing, let's say, an hour exercise, of exercise each day, they're doing intense workouts, and you know, that's within their personal sweet spot of getting the benefits without getting any harm. They feel great. They're just enjoying all the mood-boosting, energy-boosting, disease-preventative effects of doing that exercise without any harm. But then if you, you know, go to the stage of, let's say, an elite athlete, and they're doing, you know, four hours of super intense workouts every day. And a large portion of those elite athletes might actually be experiencing side effects. They might be in what's called overtraining syndrome, where there are negative hormonal effects uh, and, and they're, you know, their mood, their energy is down, um, they're sleeping poorly. You know, there's all kinds of symptoms that start emerging that are a sign that they're overdoing it. Um, The the extreme of that is obviously, you know, somebody who's dropping dead while doing a marathon, you know, and and there are people who are elite endurance athletes, who when their hearts are analyzed, they show calcification of the arteries, and actual scarring of some of those tissues. And that, again, is because they're overdoing this really amazingly beneficial medicine of exercise, they're overdoing it to the point where it's actually damaging their, their tissues. So that's a, that's a biphasic dose response. This same principle obviously applies in the context of red and near infrared light therapy, uh, where it's possible to overdo it. You got to do enough of it to get the benefit. But if you do way too much, then you're going to negate the benefits and potentially create harm. Now, I, I will say there, there's a few nuances here that are really interesting. So one is, I think overall, the potential for exceeding the beneficial dose is much lower than it is with something like exercise, meaning it's much easier to overdo exercise than it is to overdo red and near-infrared light therapy. And and it's much easier to get side effects, fatigue, and tissue damage from overdoing exercise compared to something like red and near-infrared light therapy. Now, I have actually always been quite... Conservative on this subject, and and I've you know sort of say hey like you got to make sure to stay within this these dosing parameters so you don't overdo it and negate the benefits. However, I I interviewed Dr. Michael Hamblin, who's pretty much recognized widely as the world's top uh, researcher on red and near infrared light therapy, and I asked him explicitly about this biphasic dose response, and I was actually pretty shocked by his response. He basically said he he kind of almost blew off the whole thing as like not really significant. And he basically said, yeah, it's really hard to overdo it. And I'm not worried about, you know, really negative side effects from overdoing it. And so I, I was actually pretty surprised by his response there. H- having said that, he is a researcher, and he's doing things in a lab. And what, what I've seen in my Group of about 10,000 people that have gone through my program, thousands of people that have used red light therapy, many people with uh, severe chronic fatigue or debilitating chronic fatigue syndrome. Is there seems to be, and, I, and I've talked to some other people that have verified this, um, similar people like me who work with, with thousands of people. Uh, there seems to be a subset, small subset of people, I'm guessing somewhere between one and five percent of people that have a really negative reaction to it. And, that even at really, really small doses, let's say two minutes of red light therapy, they are wiped out, exhausted for two days afterwards. And they feel just terribly fatigued or have headaches or something like that. So uh, th- th- there seems to be this, this small subset of people that, that is prone, that is really hypersensitive and prone to negative effects. Generally, in my experience, those people uh, are usually in very poor health overall. And kind of going in line, going back to what I was explaining before about your mitochondria, your resilience threshold, your tolerance for hormetic stress. Those are the same people that, in general, would likely respond extremely poorly to like doing a 20-minute workout. They would probably be wiped out for for days in response to that. Uh, and and part of the reason why we haven't talked about mechanisms, but. Red and near-infrared light therapy are a hormetic stress, and they do work partly through transiently increasing free radicals or reactive oxygen species. So somebody who has a very low, they have poor mitochondrial health, they have a very low resilience threshold, their capacity to tolerate that that burst of of reactive oxygen species is going to be very low. And so it's going to exceed that. It's just going to create damage, and their body doesn't have the resilience to recover from it. Whereas there are, I would say the majority of people could probably spend an hour in front of these lights and not notice, which is actually way more than I recommend. And they could spend that amount of time in front of the light and not experience any notable, noticeable negative side effect.
0: Yeah, I think just to summarize it, because we can go on for hours and hours, but for and you do a magnificent job of making very specific, detailed recommendations and saving people time, effort, and energy of doing the analysis themselves because you went yeah. out and purchased these devices and you did an objective, essentially consumer review of the different devices, and subdivided it based on price point and you know, your specific needs. Because Obviously, less expensive ones treat smaller surface areas, but if you want to be efficient, you get a bigger one. And, but most of the treatments are like five minutes. That's it, yeah. once a day, five minutes to the, to the body area you're treating. Now, if it's a whole body treatment, then it's I've you know, you know, your front and your back, so it's 10 minutes total uh a lot of these units so Mm um but i I wanted to talk about the the, you go off on the exercise because you you are really fit i we met in person uh last summer in uh, san diego and i was surprised how fit you are i I don't know i just because i never saw you in person but uh so i know you've been training a long time as you mentioned in your intro and what i've noticed when i'm doing my resistance training and i do. you can get something called DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness. And for me, it's particularly challenging when I do lunges, walking lunges. Mm-hmm. For some reason, that causes it more than anything. And I just actually did them last week with like 60 pounds in each hand and you know, did a number of sets on it. And if I wouldn't have used the near-infrared therapy on the back of my legs for five minutes, I would not be able to sit down or stand up for three days. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, but, but the key is you've got to do it pretty quickly close to when you do the injury. You can't wait the next day, and you can't even do it like four hours later, at least in my experience. I wonder what your, what your observations are.
1: Yeah, I, I agree completely. Um, I also, you know, if you look at the research on um, physical training and the use of red light therapy or near infrared light therapy, there's a, there's a pretty wide diversity of protocols. And some use the, the light therapy before the, the exercise, some use it after I've even some in a couple of cases, I've seen it during the exercise and um, they all seem to show benefits. So sort of regardless of, of the procedure. So one of the things I asked Dr. Hamblin was, you know, what's your take on all this kind of divergent literature? What do you think is the optimal protocol? And he said, use it both, use it before right. and after, <laughs> you know, why, why not use it before and after? And I thought that was a, a really nice reply to this seemingly complex subject. Just you know, especially from his frame of mind, it's it's hard to overdo it, um, you know, it to, to really exceed that biphasic dose response and get yourself into trouble. As long as you're not going crazy with the dose, then I say do it before and after. But yeah, I, I do agree that um, applying it right after intense training session makes a massive difference in the speed of recovery and, and how sore you get.
0: All right, so let's help people understand precisely how it's working because if you don't understand the mechanism, there's a tendency to believe it's some airy-fairy magical strategy that's working and you just have to take it on uh, belief, you know, and it's it's nice to understand there's some solid science behind this. So why don't you discuss that and its impact on the mitochondria and the cytochrome C oxidase and, and I specifically want to focus on the nitric oxide because there's some questions that you mentioned in your book and I know, I know you pretty much are citing the literature, but I, I'm I want to discuss it with you because I think I think some of those mechanisms, might mechanistic proposals, might be uh, f- uh, flawed.
1: Yeah, I, I actually agree with you. So um, I think there's a number of sort of um, accepted mechanisms, and then there's some more speculative mechanisms uh, that I think will turn out to be a big part of the story, actually. But right now, they're 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 pretty highly speculative. So. One of the, the mechanisms, probably the most well known mechanism, is what you mentioned about cytochrome C oxidase. So uh, basically, our mitochondria have this photoreceptor, photoacceptor on them called cytochrome C oxidase that, that literally sort of captures photons of light. So, this, this is an interesting frame. You know, this, these light photons are actually penetrating beneath our skin unlike let's say ultraviolet light, blue light, most of the other wavelengths of light really don't penetrate deeply into our body, but red and near-infrared light do. They penetrate deeply and they don't just go in there and do nothing. They, they, they actually interact with our cells and our mitochondria specifically. So we have this photo acceptor on our, on our mitochondria that, that captures these photons of red and near-infrared light. And there's some specific wavelengths that activate this system the best and specifically in the six to 700 range and the 800 to a thousand nanometer range. And uh, in response, those mitochondria produce energy more efficiently. They pump out ATP more efficiently. There's also an interaction uh, somewhat, I would say maybe a little controversial as to how this matters. And I think this is what you were alluding to uh, is around nitric oxide and how the uh, cytochrome C oxidase, when, the, when the, the photons of light come in, basically sort of kick out nitric oxide, which might be inhibiting the optimal respiration of those mitochondria, the optimal production yeah. of, of and,
0: ATP. And that's what Hamlet proposes. I know he writes papers on that one. Yeah, he has.
1: Uh, interestingly, he seems to think that that particular aspect of things isn't necessarily the, the, the big thing. Oh, so... Right. Um, So it's a mechanism. It's sort of, it's, it's well accepted that that happens. The question is to what extent are all of the known benefits of red and near infrared light therapy explainable through that mechanism. And, And, and I agree with him that it's probably not that it's probably a relatively small portion of of the benefits that are explainable through this mechanism. So that, that's one layer is sort of the mitochondria transiently increase their production of ATP in general cells, whether it's skin cells, whether it's your thyroid gland, whether it's your muscle cells, they work better if mitochondria are producing more energy. So that's a sort of general, you know, principle of how this could be healing and how how it could work and to to create benefits in such diverse tissues uh, from helping people with, you know, uh, autoimmune destruction of their thyroid gland to enhancing muscular performance to skin anti-aging and and so on. Um, So that's that's one layer is just enhancing mitochondrial energy production. Another layer is hormesis. So as I mentioned before, uh, the red and near-infrared light is creating a transient spike in reactive oxygen species. And just as when we get that from exercise or from sauna use, uh, that reactive ox- the, the burst of reactive oxygen species creates a cascade of, of signaling effects that ultimately result in, um, they stimulate the NRF2 pathway, they stimulate things like um, heat shock proteins in the case of saunas and, and exercise. I don't know to what extent red and near-infrared light therapy do that, maybe at least a little.
0: Um, well, they, they do. They definitely do. Yeah,
1: Definitely. yeah. It depends what part of the near. I mean, if you're getting into the heating part of the near. Yeah, on, spectrum, or yeah
0: a or far for sure. Yeah.
1: yeah. So um, that transient spike of free radicals is creating a response by your body. going back to to what I talked about uh, with hormesis. It's building up this in, intracellular antioxidant response system. It's building your mitochondria, it's stimulating your mitochondria to grow bigger and stronger and, and actually stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis, the creation of new mitochondria, and building up this inter, intracellular antioxidant defense system of things like glutathione and superoxide dismutase and, uh, and catalase to make that system more resilient, which ultimately you know, increases resistance to a broad range of other stressors.
0: Oh, wait, wait. I've got a quick inner question, yeah. question here. Are, do you make a distinction between hormesis, which actually uh, harm to the body is involved, versus adaptive homeostasis, which in the case of things like molecular hydrogen or sulforaphane, actually there's, there doesn't appear to be any hormesis. It's just a stimulation of the NRF 2 pathways and you get the benefits from that and, and produce those endogenous antioxidants.
1: Yeah. So I, I, I don't know if I agree with your distinction there that yeah. That hormesis harms. I I I, I don't. How it produces
0: its benefits. I mean, you know, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I think is the common term attributed to some early philosopher. Yeah,
1: to, to Nietzsche. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I I think what it is, it's 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 a stressor on the system. If hormesis is dosed properly, it should yeah. not create lasting harm. It should stress the system temporarily and yeah. stimulate adaptive mechanisms. That ultimately make the whole system more more resistant to any kind of harm, but um, you you shouldn't be doing hormesis at a dose that is actually creating
0: no, genuine, but there's still like, some damage. But well, I I you know the least literature i review suggests that there is some damage which stimulates the beneficial response. Like in the case of doing those lunges, I had you know, I would have pretty severe DOMS, which ultimately gives you some benefit, but there's muscle damage. So there's no right.
1: question. So, well, so there's tissue damage with exercise. I mean, that's that's a little bit of a tangent, but there's actually some debate as to whether, like how necessary the tissue yeah. damage is to get the benefits of exercise. Um, there's some literature that suggested it's not really that beneficial. But, um, you know, there is, I would say yes, at the cellular level, there's some components of the cell that are being transiently damaged and then it that that damage stimulates autophagy and cellular repair uh and mitophagy in a way in a way that almost immediately repairs the damage and makes the whole system uh if anything less damaged so so yeah yes there's like a transient damage from the increased free radicals but I, i i don't know if i would phrase it quite the way you did around like hormesis is creating harm um, I, I, would put sulforaphane in the same category, transient harm. Transient,
0: well, I, yeah. transient harm, but I think sulforaphane or molecular hydrogen would be more of an adaptive homeostasis where there isn't any, I mean, as far as we know, I mean, it's just a signal that goes out that the transduction factor to the DNA to produce these. Well,
1: things. I would say sulforaphane, uh, you know, does create a spike in free radicals. So. Uh, like, I do think that based on the same principle we're talking about, that sulforaphane is creating slight amounts of harm. Now, it may be more subtle than something really big like doing a CrossFit workout, yeah. but I, I do think you are getting this subtle bit of harm that is stimulating these uh, adaptive systems and, and repair mechanisms.
0: Okay.
1: So, um, the the third big mechanism of how red and near-infrared light therapy work is Through retrograde signaling and modulating gene expression. So, you know, obviously it used to be thought for a long, uh, a very long time, many decades, that, of course, sort of the central dogma of biology was that, you know, DNA is the big boss. And now we know through lots and lots of research, uh, you know, there's the whole science of epigenetics that shows that environmental inputs are regulating gene expression. Well, the mitochondria are a key aspect. Of that regulation of gene expression, the mitochondria are not just mindless energy generators, but they're environmental sensors that are picking up on what's going on in the environment. You know, is there are there toxins present? Are there is there a pathogen present? Is there a increased inflammatory cells present? They're picking up on these signals. They're also picking up on light signals, and then they're relaying those signals. Uh, I should also mention they're also picking up on reactive oxygen species from hormetic stress, and they're relaying these signals. Back to the mitochondria in a way that modulates gene expression. And there is a specific set of sort of um, genes that are expressed in response to red and near infrared light therapy. And, And as a general principle, to kind of I mean, there's literally in like Dr. Hamblin's textbook, there's, there's hundreds of specific compounds that you can show that get upregulated uh, in response to red and near infrared light therapy. But my, my general way of simplifying and summarizing is it activates genes involved in cell repair and cell regeneration and cellular growth. So cell growth factors, things like, and, and these, are, these differ depending on the tissues. So in the brain, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, nerve growth factor. In the skin cells, it's increasing the expression of fibro, you know, the, the fibroblasts that are synthesizing collagen. In the muscles, it's increased, uh, increasing locally the expression of things like IGF-1 uh, and uh, factors that are involved in muscle protein synthesis. Uh, and and so on. So you're getting these these kind of local effect in those specific tissues that upregulates genes involved in cell healing, growth, and repair.
0: Okay, good. So let's talk about two more mechanisms. One is the stimulation of a free radical, a beneficial free radical, at least in biologically optimal concentrations, which would be nitric oxide. It doesn't Mm -hmm. last very long, which is one of the reasons I was a little bit skeptical of the theory is combining a cytochrome c oxidase because i mean it it it, in my view it just it's 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 released by enos or inos or enos and it's not it's stored in these vesicles it's not stored on cytochrome c but but anyway when you're exposed to near infrared i forget certainly it's uv i think it's uva that causes nitric oxide release but i believe the the near infrared too that Mm -hmm. causes it so you get yeah. both of those benefits, and it's an incredibly useful strategy. So why don't you talk about that, and then also talk about, which may be one of the biggest strategies why it works, is it structures your cellular water.
1: Yes, Yeah. So these are the
0: more- the, Not the- drinking structured water, is that, that going to harm you? But it's almost useless. You want to make it by exposing your skin to the sun.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, the nitric oxide thing is very interesting. And actually, there's, there's research on UV exposure uh, suggesting specifically where they, they've looked at sort of the benefits of sun exposure beyond vitamin D. Can this be explained through vitamin D? And what they found is uh, that, that a lot of the metabolic benefits, the anti-obesity, the anti-diabetes, the blood pressure lowering, the, the cardiovascular disease lowering, uh, mortality lowering um, effects of sun exposure can't just be attributed to vitamin D. And so there's, there's a number of other effects, but one of the big ones is the release of nitric oxide. And nitric oxide, as you said, is this, it's, it's kind of got a, nitric oxide is kind of a weird compound because it kind of has a mixed reputation. Some people are saying, this is bad, this is a free radical, we've got to get rid of this stuff. And simultaneously, we know that, at least in some contexts, like red and urine infrared light therapy, like sun exposure, the increased in, uh, ex, uh, uh, release of nitric oxide seems to be associated with a wide variety of benefits, um, to many different aspects of metabolic health. So, uh, yeah, I, I do think that's one layer of the story here with both UV light and red and near infrared light therapy, you know, going back to what I was saying before about Dr. Hamlin's perspective that I agree with that this transient, sort of effect on cytochrome c oxidase and releasing nitric oxide that, that he thinks this is probably not a big part of the story. He thinks the retrograde signaling, the modulation of the gene expression is probably the biggest part of the story. And the reason why is
0: the, how does that the, is it can you expand on that?
1: Yeah, sorry, which part?
0: The retrogaging expression that you mentioned. Yeah, so
1: just what I was explaining before about how red and near-infrared light therapy is modulating the expression of genes okay. uh, and growth factors related to, to cell repair and regeneration. So the, the effect that you have on cytochrome C oxidase where it increases energy production by the mitochondria, it's very short-lived. It's very transient. And it, it might last minutes, you know, maybe at the most a few hours um, after exposure to the light. Whereas the, uh, the modulation of gene expression and these growth factors can actually last many days after exposure to light. So you're creating this very lasting, very pronounced stimulation of you know, key, key molecules that are involved in repair and regeneration of the cells. So he thinks that's a big factor, uh, probably the biggest aspect of how this works, and, and I agree with him. Um, you mentioned a couple other mechanisms, the structuring of water. Fascinating. This is what I was alluding to before about speculative stuff, but there's more and more research uh, accumulating, and I do think it will turn out to be a big part of the story. So there's, um, there's one, men- one thing I'll mention before we get to that is there's also another speculative line of research around chlorophyll metabolites mm-hmm. that end up inside of, uh, uh, of our cells um, and the research has been done on, on mammals already, so higher higher animals, showing that chlorophyll metabolites can end up in our cells, and red and near-infrared light, specifically those wavelengths of light, interact with these chlorophyll metabolites in a way that helps recycle um, the uh, u- ubiquinone from uh, ubiquinol. Uh, and in, in the process of recycling
0: is it the other way around, ubiquinone? Yeah, sorry.
1: It? It's ubiquinol from ubiquinone, so uh, the reduced version of CoQ10. Right. And uh, basically, those specific wavelengths of light help the, re- the recycling of reduced CoQ10, which enhances energy production. So there, there may be also this really interesting synergy between your diet and red and near infrared light therapy, where consuming you know, more chlorophyll-rich compounds may, may enhance this effect. But the, the structuring of water is a really fascinating layer of this story where there's research showing that um, the water near membranes, and our mitochondria are composed of membranes, uh, can actually change in viscosity in response to red and near-infrared light therapy. And there's a couple things that happen there. One is um, reduced viscosity actually helps the physical rotation of the uh, ATP synthase pump on the mitochondria, which is the the last part of the respiratory chain in mitochondria that actually physically pumps out these these, ATP molecules or it creates ATP molecules. And um, that thing is, it's a physical rotary mechanism. So you have this rotary sort of pump that needs to move in water. And there's some research that suggested that it, it moves more efficiently with sort of less resistance when the viscosity of that surrounding water is reduced so that that pump can just move easier and that that may be responsible for uh, the, you know, at least partly for the enhanced energy production. There's one other layer of the story. This is a little bit getting into the weeds, but I know will interest you. Um, I, I've dug really deep into the literature on light and deuterium, and it was actually really tough to find any literature on this. I had to do a, quite a bit of digging.
0: But There's not a lot there. There really isn't.
1: Yeah well, I did find one really interesting study. I'm happy to, to share it with you. Yeah. Um, but basically what they found is that when the viscosity of this water around the mitochondrial membranes is reduced, uh, or it, it basically put, it does two things. It pushes the deuterium molecules, which is this isotope of hydrogen that tends to damage mitochondria. It pushes it away from the mitochondria and makes it less likely to actually go through the the mitochondrial ATP synthase pump where it can create this damage. And it enhances the movement of hydrogen, normal hydrogen, not deuterium, and enhances the movement of hydrogen uh, ions across the membrane. So more hydrogen can move faster and more efficiently through the mitochondria, whereas deuterium moves less efficiently. So it, it doesn't necessarily deplete deuterium from your body where it's like actively getting rid of the deuterium from your, your cells. But what it does is it almost mimics deuterium depletion in a way by making the deuterium much less likely to actually get into the mitochondria where it would create damage.
0: So well, I thought it was that the mitochondria into the intermitochondrial space create uh deuterium depleted water ddw and when you're metabolizing fat not carbohydrate that's one of the byproducts of fat metabolism
1: so all of that stuff is is pretty controversial from my
0: perspective i
1: i you know i've i've interviewed dr laslo boros as you know on that subject and you know that we had some discussion around fat versus carbohydrates and, and and how how much one or the other is depleting um is depleting deuterium uh, it seems to me that the mitochondria also create deuterium depleted water by oxidizing, oxidizing carbohydrates. It's, it's more a, a product of mitochondrial respiration, okay. not necessarily fat uh, metabolism specifically. specifically. But, um, I, but at the same time, I, I don't claim to be a deuterium expert. I looked sp- and looked and looked explicitly for research on exactly that subject and asked uh, a a deuterium expert and and actually asked a a couple other deuterium experts. And my sense is that there's some disagreement among experts. And and I wasn't able to find any actual literature showing either way.
0: Yeah, I actually bought into it. And uh, at one point, I held the record for the lowest deuterium levels in the United States. I got it down to 77, I think. Wow. Has somebody beat you? Well, I think probably. That was a few months ago. (laughs) That was last year or so. Uh, but that's still pretty low and probably too low because there's an optimum for everything and you don't want to get that low. I guess it's not biologically helpful, I think. Mm-hmm. So uh, on another note though, I'd like to go deeper if, for a moment. I want to talk, definitely talk about sauna because that's a bit of a controversial area. And I think some something that many people would benefit from, yeah. but let's get to mitochondria because you mentioned it has membranes. It actually has three membranes, the outer membrane and the inner membrane, which is a dual membrane. And uh, that. the the inner and outer and the inner membrane and the the cristae being really important where the uh, cytochromes are located, uh, specifically where they bend. And where they bend, there's a specific fatty acid called cardiolipin or lipin, lipin, Lipin. cardiolipin. And um, if you can get that bend optimized, it actually physically puts those cytochromes closer together Mm -hmm. so they can actually transfer and exchange those electrons much easier and become more efficient. Oh,
1: interesting it, I, I haven't read that
0: yeah there's a i was at a an acam meeting earlier or last year where there was a, a, a pharmacologist from cornell who has come up with a peptide that could actually help those cristi fold better because there's a wow. tendency for those cristae to straighten out and elongate and that contributes to mitochondrial dysfunction but mm-hmm. you know but again it goes down to fatty acids so, i mean it's a little bit of a tangent and not related to the near for but Boy, if you don't have your fatty acid concentrations right and you're eating processed omega-6 fats, that cardiolipin is going to be destroyed and you're not going to be, and I'm sure you've had experience in, in consulting with your clients who, you know, this was an issue.
1: Yeah. Well, here, here's what I would relate this to. There There's a compound called uh, NT factors, which is a specific f- uh, extract of phospholipids from lecithin. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a researcher named Garth Nicholson that has done a bunch of research around lipid, lipid replacement therapy and specifically using this patented um, compound called NT factors, which uh, has amazing research. I'm so impressed with the research on this. I made this sort of the, the core um, ingredient in, in my custom uh, formula for, for mitochondrial health. But it's this compound called NT factors. It's this phospholipid extract. And the
0: idea behind it is it's is that a uh, is that a powder? I think it's a powder, isn't it? Like algae, research? yeah.
1: Yeah. So you can you get it in a in a powder, um, but some people sell it in in pill form as well. Okay. But um, so the idea behind it is, of course, our membranes are made of phospholipids, as as you were just explaining, and um, we are meant to get phospholipids in our diet to repair the damage that that you know happens on our our membranes and on our mitochondrial membranes and this nt factors phospholipid formula seems to be especially powerful at physically repairing damaged mitochondrial membranes and there's actual research pretty amazing research at least six or seven studies on people with chronic fatigue taking this formula and experiencing profound improvements in energy levels in the span of some studies are four weeks, some are eight weeks, some are 12 weeks, but really massive improvements in energy levels of between 25 to 45% in just the span of a few weeks by just doing this one thing of taking this, this phospholipid formula. So yeah, basically, I, I definitely agree that phospholipids, healthy phospholipid membranes matter.
0: Okay, good. All right. Well, let's progress to sauna, which I think is one of the most useful biological interventions you could, you could engage in on a regular ba- basis, in addition to exercise, cyclical ketosis, and uh, um, well, and eating a healthy diet. So uh, the key thing is this heat stress, this hormetic response that produces uh, HIFO and alpha and then heat shock proteins, which you know, basically repair the misfolded proteins that we have, which is a massively important strategy if you want to live long and healthy because these you know i, I didn't realize i was reading one of these studies and a review paper and it said that a third of the proteins that you make initially de novo right off the bat are misfolded wow so you have to have a capacity to repair that mm-hmm. and and sauna is one that does it on steroids now you could do it with the sun exposure too but i think you're going to be a little better with that so we had a discussion i was a strong advocate and i still am and i want to just give preface it, and i'll let you take over but of sauna space because, uh, you know, my passion with EMF and lowering that. And uh, they do have the lowest EMF sauna, but you wisely pointed out that it's somewhat advertised as a near-infrared sauna, it really isn't. There's only like about 15% of the wavelengths coming out that are near-infrared and the rest are mid and far. So it still heats you and it doesn't get up that hot. Only goes up to maybe 125 degrees. And many of the other saunas, the 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 alternative would be the far-infrared which can get up to 150, and some of the better ones 170, which is definitely going to give you a heat, a heat shock response. Yeah. Or, um, or the the other alternative is of course traditional Finnish yeah, sauna, Swedish sauna. Yeah. So, but yeah, you I've know, I i, I do not know how common those are. I mean, outside of Finland. I got uh, one right behind this door. Oh, you do! <laughs> Congratulations. <Yeah. laughs> what do you use wood to heat it up and, and breathe in all the VOCs, or? No, 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 no. It's a hot rock style. Oh, so hot I, rock. Yeah. But what heats rocks is an electric heater.
1: Yeah, it's an electric heater.
0: Yeah, see, that's yeah. the issue, because when I've measured, you know, supposedly some of the best far infrared saunas out there that promote themselves as low EMF, they almost universally have relatively low magnetic fields. It's not really super low, like the, the magnetic fields in a, in a sauna space are zero mm-hmm. milligauss or 0.1 milligauss, whereas in most of these, they're one milligauss on the far infrared. But the key, or the, the, the key is their electrical fields are through the roof. Mm-hmm they think they're low and they're not. I mean, the one that it was advertised, I, I picked one up and it was like 70 volts per meter, which is yeah. really high. Yeah, uh, and it was like the lowest a- spot. In other space. it was like five, 600. And right. that would be like 70 volts is 70,000 microvolts. Whereas yeah. in the in, in the sauna space, it's like zero. Right. So, and I haven't updated you on this. So I, I did a hybrid. I, I, I preheat the sauna <laughs> when I'm not in it, the near infrared or the far infrared, so to get the temperature up to like 170, then I turn it off. There's no electric fields and I put the near infrared on Mm -hmm. and I, I use those wavelengths. you put, you put your
1: heat lamps from sauna space inside
0: of your other sauna. Yeah. And I only only expose myself to those wavelengths and boy, I'm telling you, it is, I I would love to invite you over here and see if you can go longer (laughs) than 15 minutes. I mean, I'm just like struggling to go to 15 minutes. It's just like, everything I can just to last that long.
1: I, I, had a, I previously had a far infrared sauna that I had two heat lamps in inside of, and I actually also had an exercise bike inside of it, and I would, I would ride the <laughs> exercise bike with, with the heat lamps on my back. Um, and, and that's in large part because most infrared saunas just aren't
0: hot enough for me. No, no, they aren't. You're, you're, yeah. I agree. And you're not really going to get the therapeutic benefits that we lightly discussed, and, it, and goes in much more detail in your book of the near infrared and i took your advice and i went back to using some near infrared devices exclusively in addition to the sauna space bulb so i'm getting the best of both worlds hybrid sauna and a a nighttime uh near ir exposure at full dose you know full kilowatt at uh uh 850 nanometers you know for five minutes so
1: Mm -hmm. very nice
0: yeah. So, yeah so, okay. so why don't you go over that? Because I think it is an important detail that I know I was confused. If I was confused, I think a lot of other people were.
1: Yeah, I, there's so much here. So um, I, I would love for you to kind of interject as, as we go along and feel free to ask me about specific things because just this topic alone, I feel like I could talk for 30 minutes straight. But uh, so let, let's just start off with, you know, as you said, the, the, the misnomer. Um, I, I'm putting words in your mouth a little bit, but basically, the um, just the issue of naming. So there's a thing out there of far infrared saunas for, versus near infrared saunas. Some people have claimed that you know things like, oh, you don't want far infrared saunas because really near infrared saunas are better. So let's just start off by saying near pure like actual near infrared saunas, a saunas that is that is pure near infrared light, uh, or energy isn't really a thing like that, that doesn't exist. So they do exist, but it's not going to be a sauna. It won't won't heat you up. Exactly. That's what I mean. So pure near infrared light therapy exists, but pure near infrared sauna therapy is not a thing. So, um, when people talk about this near infrared sauna, generally what they're talking about is the use of incandescent heat lamps. And the, as, as you said, the majority of uh, the energy being emitted is actually in the mid and far infrared part of the spectrum. And a small portion, about 14% of that light is being emitted of that energy is being emitted in the, the near infrared part of the spectrum. And part of the, it's a little bit tricky and nuanced because part of the near infrared spectrum is non-heating and part of the near, near infrared spectrum is heating. And, uh, but roughly about 14% of this you know heat lamp energy is 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 in the near infrared range and so my point is these things that are being called near infrared saunas are actually emitting the vast majority of their energy in the mid and far infrared part of the the, the spectrum so it's it's really just a misnomer it's not really accurate and it's kind of confusing to people to it leads people to think this is an entirely different category of things that's emitting just a totally different part of the spectrum. And it's, it's just not. It's emitting mostly mid and far infrared plus some portion of light, about 14% in the, in the near-infrared spectrum.
0: But, but it's still a therapeutic dose, especially if you're getting it for 20 minutes. And it's, if it's 14% and if you've got a kilowatt of energy, it's 140 watts over 20 minutes, which I think in joules would probably translate to a pretty effective therapeutic dose.
1: Well, we got to to be clear about what we're talking about because what these these heat lamp saunas do is they're basically a hybrid. They're a hybrid between a photobiomodulation device, so red and near-infrared light therapy, hybrid between that and saunas. And what their claim is is that they're sort of the best of both worlds. They're a better sauna and they're a better type of photobiomodulation device. Now, I would say in response to those two claims, where is the evidence? Where is the evidence that, it, that using heat lamps, incandescent heat lamps, is a better type of photobiomodulation device since basically all the existing research on red and near-infrared light photobiomodulation, it doesn't use this kind of device. And I would also say, where is the evidence showing that heat lamp saunas are better than traditional saunas? Again, since virtually all of the research on the benefits of saunas Do not use this type of saunas and, in fact, use mostly traditional saunas, but maybe about 20% use far infrared saunas. But there's basically no research on this. So I would say basically the the burden of proof is on the makers of these saunas Mm -hmm. to prove where, you know, show us the evidence uh, that these are better photobiomodulation devices, that these are better saunas. And in the absence of that proof, I, I just don't think you can make claims of superiority.
0: Yeah, I don't know about claims of superiority, but from my perspective, and what I think is maybe optimal is what I just suggest: is the hybrid version, where you're actually using both. I agree that you need a higher temperature. I agree I th- with you. I think there's a benefit for two primary benefits of the the sauna space and these heat lamp saunas are that there's no EMF if it's done properly. No EMFs, no electrical fields, no magnetic fields. Uh, there's going to be some radio frequency if you use it in a far infrared enclosure, unless you uh, shield it in some way. But so that just disappears and that that is a commonly The underappreciated aspect of sauna therapy because when you're sauna, many people are using it for detoxification, and it's really difficult to detox if your parasympathetic if your sympathetic system is activated through exposure to these radio frequency fields or electric fields. You want to really be in parasympathetic mode, and that's best done in a very low EMF field. And then then, secondly, is you're getting full spectrum. Admittedly, it's only 14% near, but it's hundred percent analog, no digital. So, which is most closely emulates the sun exposure that you would get that most people are deficient in. So I think as long as you're compensating for the heat by preheating with a far infrared and not turning it on and then getting some supplemental near IR, exclusively near IR, I think you've got the best of both worlds.
1: Yeah, I agree with you 100%. So let's let's frame it this way. So if you have a, a, a heat, a quote unquote near infrared style sauna, heat lamp style sauna, yeah. where you're sitting in a chamber that is 110 degrees right. to to 120 degrees you cannot claim that it has the same benefits right. of a sauna when virtually all of the benefits of so, uh, of uh, the research on sauna uses uh, chambers sauna chambers that are massively hotter than 110 to 120 mm-hmm. degrees they're using temperatures of 170 to 220 degrees so yeah. if it's 100 degrees less you can't just say, "Hey, this has the same all the benefits of saunas." You can't you can't invoke literature around no. the benefits of using a traditional sauna. No, to it doesn't simulate.
0: mean it doesn't work. They just haven't done the studies, and it might. Right. They, these wavelengths do penetrate deeper, as you alluded to earlier. Whereas far infrared only penetrates a few millimeters, so it's by convection heating.
1: Yeah, it's so pretty- it's I I I agree. It's fine. It's fine to say maybe it does have the ben- the same benefits, or maybe it has. Um, some of the benefits or maybe it even has superior benefits but all of those are speculative claims that you can't make until you've done the study so to be selling the products and making the claims i I think is a bit inaccurate um, and is a bit of a misrepresentation of the literature to to sort of invoke all of the benefits of the, the, the the research on sauna for this device that is not really it's not a a a hot chamber at 180 or 200 degrees. It's a hot yeah. chamber at 110 degrees.
0: Yeah, but most people, in my experience, you know, when they're looking into this, they, they they've already have a far infrared sauna. So it's a it's a it's actually yeah. not that expensive to get these lamps and put it in that. It's a lot less expensive than buying this full EMF canopy. Yeah, so, I agree. So, a small upgrade, and then you get the best of both worlds. And I think it really is. I'm I'm so I'm so greatly and deeply appreciative of you cluing me into this because I modified my approach based on your insights.
1: Great, yeah. So I agree with you 100. If 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 the comparison is 180 degree sauna or 170 degree sauna, um, without heat lamps, without the, the 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 benefits of the additional red and near infrared part of the spectrum that you're going to get from from some of those those heat lamps, um, versus with the heat lamps, I think it's unquestionable that you know, having the heat lamps in there probably will provide some additional benefit. But if you're, if you're comparing right. 110 or 115 degree heat lamp sauna versus a 200 degree traditional sauna or 170 degree infrared sauna, I would strongly be in favor of the hotter chamber and I would be willing to bet a lot of money that that would have much more benefits.
0: Yeah, you're probably right, but you got to do the study to find out to confirm yes. it. But I yes. I think it's a solid uh, assumption. Yeah. So,
1: you know, uh, part of it is is when you look at the mechanisms, we know for example that um heat, you know, in animal studies, heat stress extends lifespan it it invokes it it um Stimulates all kinds of mechanisms that are involved in longevity, autophagy, uh, increased resilience via these hormetic pathways. And in general, when it comes to hormesis, I believe you, you do need to get a bit uncomfortable.
0: Yes, it it,
1: it it should be something that kind of pushes you into your edge of discomfort. And my experience with the heat lamp style saunas by themselves in these 110, 120 degree chambers is... They don't really push the edge of discomfort, yeah. apart from the the maybe the local area that's being, you know, exposed to the to the light from the heat lamps. You, that area might get a little overly hot, but in general, you never really get to that feeling like you get in a traditional sauna where you're like, no. man, I am so uncomfortably hot, I got to get out of here.
0: Ari, you have got to go preheat your sauna to 170, turn it off, and put on <laughs> the, near, the near infrared bulbs. I mean, yeah. you, I believe you. almost within three or four minutes, you're there. Yeah.
1: I believe you. Yeah, for sure. I, I like I said, I, I'm fully in agreement. I think that's probably the best of both worlds. And yeah. if you can have a hot sauna plus get some near infrared therapy, absolutely best of both worlds. 100 you know, percent I got a
0: smaller sauna, so I have to take the seat off because I have to rotate around. That's the disadvantage of the bulbs. I mean it's not yeah. it's not pervasive. It's it's localized treatment. So you gotta turn around. Yeah. yeah.
1: But you know, I, I think there's also there's some other issues around this near infrared thing. There's there's some 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 myths, and I don't want to digress too much here, but there's some myths that kind of irk me a little bit about the whole infrared sauna space where people have made claims like, you know, around, you know, the benefits of full spectrum and why it's superior to just far infrared. And, and my response is, where's the evidence? Like yeah. if, if you're claiming your emitters are some special spectrum of light, where is the evidence that shows that that's superior to just a, a traditional oh. sauna with no infrared? Um, and, and the evidence doesn't exist. So there's things like that, and and that has things that are really just marketing gimmicks that have been kind of portrayed as a scientific fact. And there's also claims like, um, you know, the the infrared light is, you know, penetrating deeply into your body and causing the release of, you know, 20 times more uh, toxins that you sweat out. You know, the sweat from an infrared sauna is 20 times more concentrated with toxins than a traditional sauna. Well, well, that and, was uh, a
0: claim made by many far infrared saunas, at least early yes. on. I mean, there's yeah, no, it, that, was, that was huge. And that was just not true because it only yes. penetrates a few millimeters.
1: Yes, yeah. It's, it's not true on a number of levels. As you said, it only penetrates a few millimeters. So it's not really getting deeply into the body. And the, the only studies that exist, there's about three studies that have actually tested sweat from infrared saunas versus traditional saunas. And even some of them have tested exercise as well. There's no significant difference in the amount of concentration of toxins in the sweat from those different types of of sweating. So you know, there, there's been again just kind of some layers of mythology that have been created around people selling. Again, this is mostly far infrared makers of far infrared saunas that have created this myth, mythology. Um, but the, these claims that are marketing gimmicks that aren't really true.
0: I, w- I was actually tempted to do a little research study and actually measure my heat shock proteins. And a friend of mine has a lab or a uh, mass spec that he can do it. He just has to get the standards.
1: If you can't exercise for a period of time, uh, there's some research showing that heat stress preserves muscle mass. So uh, let's say you're sick or something. You've got a cold uh, for, for a couple of weeks and you can't exercise. Interesting. Uh, the, the, the use of sauna exposure during that period of time where you're, uh, you're not exercising may help preserve some of your fitness and some of your your muscle mass and prevent the loss of that.
0: Well, also it's creating hyperthermia and we know there's no unquestionably, one of the reasons you get a fever or an elevated body temperature when you have an infection is so you can treat the pathogen.
1: So raising
0: your body temperature is an effective strategy to to circumvent the particular illness that you're struggling with or infectious illness.
1: Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So yeah, I I think and and overall you know we we kind of glossed over this, but I fully agree with you that saunas are oh. maybe one of the most beneficial and most underappreciated, along with sunlight, I'd say. Yeah, uh, you know therapies that we that we have available to us. I mean, there's there's just such impressive research around reduction in cardiovascular mortality, neurological yeah, I mean, disease mortality, all cause mortality.
0: Cite, cite those stats because it's impressive. I'm thinking you're referring to the Finnish data, which was like 60% reduction for the, yes. and the men at least who did cardiovascular or all cause mortality when they were doing like five or more sonas a week. I mean, it's crazy. It's just yeah, like, too exactly. it's going to be true.
1: Yeah, so they, they looked at uh, a little, about 2,300 men for 20 years. So Small study,
0: small <laughs> study.
1: Yeah, so I mean, as you know, studies that, that follow this amount of people for this long are extremely rare. And, uh, and they, they looked at sauna exposure uh, just one time a week versus two to three times a week versus four to seven times a week and basically they found the more sauna you do the more more benefits you get for a number of outcomes so um, here's here's a big stat for you those people using the sauna four to seven times a week were 40 percent less likely to die from any cause all cause mortality over that span of of 20 years compared to people using the sauna only once per week Um, there's also they found 50 percent lower uh, risk of dying from cardiovascular disease um, it, compared to again people using the sauna only one time. Neurological disease. Uh, those using the sauna four to seven times per week had a 66% reduced risk of dementia and a 65% reduced risk of of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and if if and, if and, and, and this is really neuro- just infrared. what's that?
0: I just think if they combine that with near infrared, which is synergistic. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. So and then there's also you know that's just Sort of outcomes that emerged from that finished data, but there's there's a number of other really impressive benefits of sauna. Obviously, detoxification, some of the other benefits we mentioned, but um, depression is a really interesting one. There was a uh, in 2016 there was a double-blind, randomized controlled trial uh, on people with major depressive disorder, showing that one single treatment of whole-body hyperthermia uh, using an infrared sauna resulted in in a huge reduction in depression scores, and these. Uh, improvements persisted over about six weeks, and the researchers actually found that the um, the effect size of how much it reduced their depression was greater than SSRIs antidepressants. So you know it, it's kind of a remarkable thing. You know we have millions of people on SSRI antidepressant drugs, and probably 99% of them have no idea that sauna therapy can can massively improve their their level of depression.
0: Now, I'm sure you've reviewed the literature and I'm wondering if you've come to any conclusions on integrating cold plunges post sauna. I mean, with respect to the time and the temperature and duration of the plunge. Do you have any yeah. I,
1: I think last I heard, basically there's some people looking into that, but uh, I haven't seen any real concrete data on, um, you know, showing, you know, comparing it to just regular sauna use without the cold plunge showing if it's they, beneficial they, or not.
0: They, they do both.
1: Yeah. Well, here's, here's what, um, I would relate it to, so in that finished data that I mentioned, they track not only the the number of times you use it per week but also the duration of each session mm-hmm. and um, And again, they find that longer session time correlated with reductions in in these various uh, in mortality from these various diseases so uh cold plunges in the middle of sauna sessions if you then do a cold plunge get back in the sauna it can potentially greatly extend the overall time that you've spent in that sauna and by virtue of that could um could 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 potentially increase the benefits but in addition to that there very well could be some amplification of you know doing the cold plunge also stimulate some of these pathways interestingly uh, I read some data showing that the cold plunges actually can stimulate, of all things, heat shock proteins. Right, yep. which oh,
0: it's like cold shock proteins, <laughs> and then yeah. and brown adipose tissue or bat, So. Mm-hmm.
1: So it's very possible, and I'm very open to the idea that it would amplify the benefits of sauna use.
0: Well, let me just interject a caution, because uh, you mentioned it earlier, but I wanted to reinforce it now, And that more is not necessarily better, and yeah. that if you have too much of a hormetic stress, you will actually cause harm. So it doesn't mean you go into the sauna at 170 for an hour. You yeah. listen to your body, and it might be five minutes initially, 10, 15, but very rarely do you need more than 30 minutes. It's typically a sweet spot somewhere between 15 and 20 or 30, somewhere in there. And, and you have to yeah. build up a tolerance to it. You just don't jump into this thing for, for, without you know, developing an, an adaptive response.
1: Yeah. And, and to add to that, I would say a lot of people with severe health problems, a lot of the people I work with cr- with chronic fatigue, they need to start at, at literally 105, 110 degrees, and they can only tolerate three minutes. And you know what? That's, that's where you start. That's your body's personal threshold. And just with exercise, just as it would be a mistake to go from being sedentary to you know, trying to run a marathon, or or run ten miles or something like that. You you start with jogging a hundred meters or even simpler than that. You start with walking at a fast pace for you know a, a little bit of a distance and you build up from wherever your starting point is over time to you know an athlete somebody who's very young and fit. You know I can be in a sauna for, for at two hundred ten degrees for for thirty or forty minutes and for a lot of people that are that are ill that's way past their personal threshold they're only going to get negative effects from that kind of a dose Um, so you have to start wherever you're at and build up slowly and systematically
0: yeah well this is great and we haven't even got into the recommend specific recommendations for the near uh, near infrared and red therapy devices which it goes over extensively. and it's surprising because if you you know the, the the leader, at least by brand reputation, is Ju J O O V V, and and that wasn't his winner. I mean, he's the and and all the devices categories, it wasn't the winner. So yeah. if you want to save yourself some money, get the better device. Uh, you've got to get this book. It's really, if you're a health enthusiast, I mean, this really needs to be on your shelf, and I think you will not regret it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for the kind words. I appreciate it. And, and just to be clear, you know, I'm not interested in bashing any brands. I think Juve actually no, make no, high you... quality lights. They just tend to be more expensive than some of their competitors at some of the, you know, the, the particular device sizes, but I think their abs- their lights are absolutely, you know, high quality lights. And yeah, there's like a, a th- number of, of other companies that are making similar lights, similarly sized device, similar wavelengths and, and, uh, um, light irradiance parameters or power density parameters that just are a little bit cheaper. But um, yeah, there's a a few good brands. One little caution I will mention is there's, it really matters what device you get. I want to put this caution out there, okay? Because there's a lot of junk devices. There's a lot of devices that are, you know, one fiftieth the power output of the devices that I recommend. And somebody who isn't savvy to that, isn't knowledgeable about why the, the power output of these devices matters, might just go on Amazon and buy some thirty dollar device and think, okay, you know, I, I'm doing red light therapy. Well, just as it's it's like imagine if I did 20 minutes of exercise, you know, holding this little voice recorder in my hand where this, this was my exercise.
0: Well, if you did it with blood flow restriction, it would really work well. (laughs) Yeah, that's true.
1: (laughs) You're adding a nuance that's making this more complex, but um, so imagine that I did this for 20 minutes. That's my workout versus if I did, let's say a 20 minute super intense um, CrossFit workout where I'm doing squats and deadlifts and pull-ups and sprints, and they're both 20 minutes. But they're very, very different as far as the, the demands on the body and the, the, the adaptations you're going to stimulate and the benefits you're going to get from those two things. So the same thing is true. If you get a, a crappy, junk, underpowered little device, you're not doing the same red light therapy or near-infrared light therapy as getting a real high-powered device. So it is very important to, to do this the right way, to get the right quality device, and to dose it the right way.
0: Excellent. So the name of your book, The Ultimate Guide to Red Light Therapy, uh, your podcast, which is the Energy Blueprint podcast, and your mm-hmm. website, I, is it what, the Energy Blueprint?
1: Yeah, theenergyblueprint.com.
0: Yeah. Any other ways that people can connect with you? No, that's the best way,
1: theenergyblueprint.com.
0: Yeah. And you're coming up with a new book and you please, you must, you must send me a draft of that book at least three yes. months before a pub date so I can review it and have you back on again because that'll be another yeah. fascinating discussion.
1: Yeah, I would love to. I, I'm so excited to share that book with you because I, I know you're, you're going to love it and you're going to be blown away with some of the, the layers of mechanisms and the research of, of how sunlight is affecting our bodies. You know, Beyond the vitamin D story, we talked about some of it with red and for infrared light, but there's just so much cool, fascinating stuff there. So I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to share that with you.
0: Yeah. And then once you understand these mechanisms and that there's really solid biology here that makes perfect sense, then you're going to be motivated to change your lifestyle. I mean, you're not necessarily living up north the rest of your life. You do have the option to move, you know, and you can move to an environment that's going to be more conducive to your long-term health and your family's long-term health. And maybe your tax tax structure because (laughs) there's a lot of states that have 15% tax and, you know, the places like Florida and Texas have like zero. Yeah. So, we got to be
1: careful because otherwise, places where we live, you know, in Florida, and yeah, yeah. Southern California, are going to be flooded with with people, well, people from from people up are north. People aren't
0: going to Southern California; the tax rate's too high. That's and, that's
1: true. Florida's a lot better for that.
0: Yeah, there's a massive exodus from California to these yeah. states. So, I mean, yeah. I think Florida is like one of the top states in the country for for uh, not immigrants, but in I, I I forget what you call the people coming to, in, in input it into the state. but
1: Yeah, people from one state moving to another. I don't know. Yeah,
0: the right. we have a large immigration. So, yeah. But anyway, you, this was fantastic. It was a real treat. I knew I would enjoy it. I was looking forward to this. And I'm going to look forward to the next one, too. So it's yeah. been, it was thank, great.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Mercola. It was really a pleasure. And thank you so much for having me on the show.
0: All right.